I'm Gregory Berg, and on behalf of everybody here at WGTD, we wish you and yours a happy and safe holiday. On today's program, two interviews about Dr. Seuss, the second of which will concern the 2007 release of the special 50th anniversary of his classic Christmas book, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Enjoy. Well, fans of Dr. Seuss can rejoice in a marvelous new book which has just been released called The Seuss, The Whole Seuss and Nothing But the Seuss, a visual biography of Theodore Seuss Geisel by Charles D. Cohen, who is a dentist by trade and a collector of Seussiana uh, by day and night, probably, one of the world's... uh, foremost collectors of Susiana, and and indeed, beyond the familiar children's books which so many of us know and love and perhaps grew up on, there is a, a whole wealth of other material which uh, uh, represents uh, the, the wide-ranging genius of Theodore Zeus Geisel. And we have Charles D. Cohen with us for a few minutes to uh, talk about his devotion to Dr. Seuss and uh, the experience of of making this book happen. Charles D. Cohen, we welcome you to The Morning Show. It's wonderful to speak with you. Looking forward to it very much. Tell us, if you would, first of all, a little bit about your own uh, devotion to uh, the legacy of, of Dr. Seuss. When did that happen, and at what point did it end up kind of taking over your life? <laughs> well asked. Um, I really started back in around 1986. There was a a touring exhibit that started out in San Diego called Dr. Seuss from then to now. And I saw that in about 1988 when it came through New York. And that was the first time that I learned that Dr. Seuss had done things other than the children's books with which we're all familiar. And I was fascinated, and I really wanted to learn more about that other side of him. But it turned out that there wasn't that much information out there. I had assumed that he's famous and so well-loved that people would have written about this. Um, but there really was a dearth of information. So my, I'm a bit uh, compulsive <laughs> about these things. I started digging and trying to find firsthand sources. And uh, as I did, I found that not only was there a, a lack of material, but that the material that existed often had uh, misinformation, uh, not necessarily intentional, obviously, some of which was caused by him being a really good storyteller who often liked telling stories more than he liked telling the truth. (laughs) Right. uh, And somewhere in there, as I kept digging and digging, uh, I started acquiring all of these things so that I could continue studying. And I looked around and said, well, wait a minute. I don't know how much of this stuff is being lost just to time. And we're celebrating the Seussentennial, the the 100 years. That makes a lot of his early work 75 years old already. And things are lost. Things fox and yellow and get brittle. Uh, the paper drives in World War II, things were recycled. Uh, one generation passes their collection on to the next who doesn't care about it as much. Uh, and I was wondering if things were just being lost. And as I cleared up things uh, and found out what the real stories were, I felt like a responsibility to let people know, uh, to let them know what the truth was, and then let them see these things that I'm finding, because they're so enjoyable. Yes. Let's find out a little bit about what, what you call the digging process of, of, of uncovering um old ads, old articles, uh, all kinds of, of, of different examples of, of the genius of, of, of Dr. Seuss. Um, where did you dig? How did you dig? How did you know where to dig? Uh, I mean, because there's a whole wide world out there. You, you had to start somewhere, I suppose. Absolutely. It's, it's like a forensics uh, experiment. Uh, you start with a little fact, and then you trace it from there. And there are numerous examples. One of the ones that I enjoyed was uh, 
be considered a normal channel. I had found that he had done a, what I call lost stories in late 1940, early 1950s, um, <clears throat> which there are stories that people would know. Obviously, Horton hatches the egg, Horton hears a who, but they wouldn't know Horton and the Quugger bug, for example. Hmm. Uh, and so I would get a lead like that, 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 that a story exists. And then, thanks to the Internet, which, and this book could not have been written in 10 years ago, where you couldn't do all this research at this pace, um, you, you can track down and find out which libraries have it, make an interlibrary re- uh, loan request. I found I, was, I waited literally a year to get one of the four parts of that particular story. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, not of that story, but of a, of a story in the junior uh, Catholic messenger. Hmm. And after a year, I said, well, wait a minute. We have the Internet. I have this ability. So Three o'clock in the morning one time, I, I track which four libraries in the country carry that, uh, write an email, you know, track down the web address. Each place is a university. It must have a library. A library has to have a librarian. They have an email address. Um, went to bed after writing to four of them. When I woke up, three of the librarians had already emailed me that they had sent me copies of all four stories. I mean, it was a matter of you know, six hours of sleeping or something, and you already have three different copies coming. Hmm. So the, the process of tracking is, is aided greatly by what you can do uh, with the Internet. So you're lucky you weren't trying to write this book 20 years ago. Literally could not have been done. And I, I appreciate that now. When I was saying that other books lacked whatever they, they were missing, I understand much better now. Hmm. Why, that, why that happened? It was not just carelessness. No, no. It was just literally impossible to find these. And something like, uh, I, I always give my appreciation to a, a place like eBay, uh, because for, for a lot of people, this is just a, a way of tracking things uh, to buy. And yes, I do a lot of that. But for me, this is people all over the world doing research for me. If hmm. someone in Japan sh- turns up an illustration he did in, a, in an arcane newspaper or magazine, that's great. Even if I don't own it, that goes in my database. Now I know that exists as well. And when you obtain some of these things, then you can start this forensics process. Uh, if I can, I'll give you one more uh, example of that. Yes. He did, um, he did illustrations for someone else's book. Uh, the book was called Are You a Genius? Part 2. He did many others, but this was one in particular. So the first step in this process of research is finding out that he did that book at all. The next step is, if you're lucky, you find a copy. It's a somewhat rare book. But if you just get a copy of the book and it doesn't have the dust jacket on it, then all you know is he did these uh, six or 12 illustrations. I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, however, if you get a copy that has the dust jacket, then you'll find a little blurb that mentions that a, a game was made based on this, for which he also did illustrations. So until you follow through at least these two steps, you don't even know that existed. Mm. Then finding that is the next <laughs> difficulty. But it, it's really just each piece of information, everything that comes in, I pour over every bit of it, and then find out what else can I learn about him from the thing that I've just received. I have to t- talk to you uh, since we've, we've been uh, experiencing just how thorough this uh, has, has been uh, an experience for you. I have to have you uh, talk a little bit about this wonderful process you undertook in trying to figure out uh, the wonderful Dr. Seuss story of Horton Hatches the Egg. Uh, one of the things you do is um, you give us sort of the evolving answer which Dr. Seuss gave over the years about how he came up with this outrageous idea of an elephant sitting up in a tree, sitting on an egg, trying to hatch the thing. Uh, how Great that story. answer changed. And then the detective work which you were able to do to sort of trace the uh, emergence of this wonderful idea and story over over the course of a number of years. Uh, 
Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed that. I got a kick out of doing that myself. And I think it's, it's exactly what is needed to do really good research on this subject. I, I should add also, before I explain that anecdote, that uh, I didn't mean to say that everything was done through the Internet. I also traveled to the Library of Congress, went to the Dartmouth where he went to college, went out to San Diego where the Mandeville Collection is kept, which has a lot of Susiana. Uh, so, I mean, all over the place. But um, to get to this particular subject, it, it's a great story. Um, people would ask him, of course, how he came up with his ideas. And one of the ones he told was about Howard and Hatches the Egg. And he, he varied it over 30, 35 years, uh, which was the first thing that led me to believe that it probably, <laughs> probably wasn't exactly the truth. Again, he's a wonderful storyteller, and he enjoyed that more than he enjoyed the truth often. Um, so the basic story was that he had a sketch of, a, of an elephant, a sketch of a tree, and what he told his biographers in 1995, who were friends of his for 30 years and enjoyed hearing his stories, uh, Judith and Neil Morgan, that he told them that he left the window open, went out for a walk on the day after New Year's in 1940, and then when he came back, the wind had blown one sketch on top of the other, and he came back and saw the elephant in the tree, and bingo, he's got, he's got this great idea. Um, but if you do the research and say, well, wait a minute, there are a lot of versions. Let me track down the facts of this story. Um, go to the New York Times and find out that actually the the temperature that day was negative five degrees with the wind chill outside his apartment. It, it's not window up and go for a walk weather. Uh, and he had told that same anecdote a few, uh, several years earlier, and it was happening in the you know spring summer area. Um, so it's it's a lot of fun to go through first and find out okay that that isn't true. So now what really did happen? And that particular story developed over a ten year period, and we try to show through some of the 700 images that we have in this book, um, the, the progression, the way he would work with different animals out of context, a whale up in a tree or different animals with eggs, uh, you get to the point where at one point you have an elephant on an egg and it just smashes it. Uh, two years before the book actually came out, he did a story called uh, Matilda, the Elephant with a Mother Complex, and it's the exact same story that we're familiar with of the elephant and the bird flying off and the elephant trying to hatch the egg but has the exact opposite outcome. In the end, they think Matilda's an idiot for trying to, <laughs> trying to hatch this egg. The bird flies off with no gratitude, the, the child, that is. Um, so you can see that no matter what he told us the story, it's very clear that he was working and honing and changing this idea until he got to the great story we now remember. Mm. It's, it's good that you give us that that fable, Matilda the Elephant with a Mother Complex, in its entirety. Uh, I mean, it's it's actually mostly text with, with really just two illustrations and then a moral at the very end of it. Moral, don't go around hatching other folks' eggs. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to be speaking with someone, by the way, who has seen the book since it, it comes out today. It's wonderful that someone's been able to already read some and hopefully enjoy it. Oh, it's a it's a sheer delight. It it really really is, and and it is really in particular so fun to see the evolution of of certain ideas uh, when all we know is is the finished form, you exactly. know, the book which ended up in our hands as youngsters, uh, to to see the, the the twists and turns that the t- story uh, took as it uh, as it evolved over time. You've and you've done all of us a real service here. Thank you and. and- what you were saying about the, the pleasure of being able to see the whole piece, I think that's important if you're really going to get an understanding. And, you know, the, the book itself, when you're dealing with a biography, tends to be geared above the average child's uh, interest, although he, as, a, as an author, is of interest to children. So I wanted to have things that people could read to kids, like that story. Uh, or later in the book, the other one that we were able to publish in its entirety that people wouldn't be familiar with is called Speedy Boy. And uh, we published portions of other 
really fun stories that people have forgotten about because they were never published again in books. Uh, there's a story called Tad and Todd about identical twins. Uh, some of them are just marvelous, and I, I really felt this as we got into all the research and things um, for the book. It was this feeling of responsibility that came up to, uh, to not let these things be lost to time. We're speaking with Charles D. Cohen, and we're talking about his book called The Seuss, The Whole Seuss, and Nothing But the Seuss, a visual biography of Theodore Seuss Geisel. You, at some point in the book, take great pains to say that this is not a thorough biography of Theodore Geisel, and, and yet you do give us some helpful background information on who he was, his family, where he grew up, and in particular, I, I found interesting uh, the influence uh, which... Uh, perhaps played on his uh, young creative mind by a, a certain uh, children's author whose books he apparently read with the last name of Belloc, B-E-L-L-O-C. I didn't know this name, but when I read Dr. Seuss, I just think there's never been anybody like Dr. Seuss before, but in, indeed there sort of was. Well, I wouldn't say that Belloc was, was a predecessor of that ilk. I think uh, uh, you'd find Charles Lutwich Dodson, or, or uh, Lewis Carroll, rather, um, would be more of the type of predecessor people would, would recognize. But he he took things from different authors because he had this really peculiar memory. He, he couldn't forget certain things, particularly images. So with the Belloc books, it wasn't so much the, the text, which was more of a moralistic teach kids to behave sort of thing. Um, but he remembered the images that uh, Basil Blackwood, or BTB is the artist that did those. Um, he remembered those images. There's, I think... You probably remember the images of the goat on atop the mountain. Uh, it was just a, a throwaway image. I have no idea why that stuck with him. Uh, but he reproduces that throughout his entire life, and there's probably 50 examples of it. Hmm. When I was thinking, too, you mentioned the fact that Belloc liked to often make up yes. names or words in order to finish out a rhyme. Yes, and, and, of course, that's also a, a familiar hallmark of a lot of Dr. Seuss's works. Yes, clearly. He, I mean, he absorbed all of these things, as well as from... Other children's authors, uh, Peter Newell, who did the whole book, for example, he got a certain playfulness uh, out of them, and he did learn things like creating words, obviously. Um, but I think he, I think he'd agree, he took it to a whole different level when he right. well, his and, own work. Well, and you say that he uh, he sort of uh, rebelled against the what you call kind of the puritanical tone of, yeah. of a lot of those of a lot of that children's literature. I mean, he might have taken visual images or certain styles of writing from it, but then uh, uh, it was towards an, the end of a, of, of a wholly, wholly different and refreshing sort of moral or point to the story. Yes, clearly. As a matter of fact, uh, I've, I've learned that in England and in Canada in particular, um, Dr. Seuss has sort of this anarchic uh, <laughs> uh, persona. People really like this countercultural sort of feel that they get from him. And uh, at first, I thought it might just have to do with a character like the Cat in the Hat, who isn't your traditional character, uh, allows people to, to mess up a house rather than teaching them to keep it clean. But it, it, was, it was more than that. And when you look at it, it, fundamentally, he has this slightly anti-authoritarian um, influence where any character in power, whether it be uh, a teacher or particularly any ruler, a king, uh, whether it's the Kingdom of Did or whether it's Yertle as, even as a non-human ruler, they're, they're either idiots or they're incompetent, and it takes a kid to come along and show them the right way, show them how things should be done. Um, I think that people appreciate that part of it as being a, a, a different take, a refreshing take, uh, 
uh, and a more normal take. I mean, the, the Dick and Jane series that people are used to reading back at, at that time, um, they're like sickly sweet kids. Nobody's like that. Hmm. So you get a whole different sort of version. Uh, and then, again, the types of things he's teaching them, uh, once he gets their attention to the idea of tolerance, that the person's a person no matter how small, that it uh, doesn't matter if you have a star on your belly or not, uh, that we should we should be tolerant and fight against prejudice. Uh, what more important things for the for the fate of the world, if you will, uh, would you want to teach a child? And also the, the power and the wonder of the imagination. Uh, my favorite book growing up was On Beyond Zebra, and here he's telling you, you don't need to accept, this is again that sort of uh, anti-authority thing, here someone's just giving you a simple thing like the alphabet, their whole intention is for you to learn it and then go on from there, learn how to read and write. But he's going, you don't have to accept even the alphabet at face value. What if there were things beyond Z or before A or between C and D or something? <laughs> um, you know, you don't have to be limited. Um, and it's not that you should flaunt, you know, your, your arrogance against authority. It's that you don't need to be limited, that you can use your brain, use your imagination, and create all kinds of worlds. Even a, a little walk to school, as in, and, and I, uh, to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, uh, a simple walk to school, you can have a whole event, a whole parade, which you may or may not decide to share with other people, um, but you can amuse yourself just using your brain. It's so good to see very early Ted Geisel, very early Dr. Seuss, if you will, dating back to his central high school days, where you find all kinds of things, and, and where we see him uh, not especially skilled as, a, as a, an illustrator yet, <laughs> although uh, trying, and I, mean, I suppose creative in, in, in some respects, but a, a marvelously witty writer. I mean, a, a, a Mark Twain in the making in some respects. Another of my favorites, thank you. <laughs> uh, no, it, it was, it's really instructive for me, too, to see that. It, it's kind of encouraging to see someone who doesn't draw particularly well, but uh, we published one of his uh, earlier pieces, I think it was his second published piece, actually, uh, which is a takeoff of uh, oh, um, My Captain, My Captain, Oh, Captain, My Captain. Yes, um, Oh, Latin, Oh, Latin. Right, <laughs> Very exactly. good. And you, you're sitting there going, this is a 14-year-old kid, first of all, they took Latin at that age back then, um, but that he, it's a very clever parody, and you can see that he's already a wordsmith. He loves playing with the sounds of, of words, uh, and he quickly did develop a, a quite a, a unique style uh, as he started into cartooning. But I, to me, these are treasures, and I continue to find new things that date back to the, to the early 20s, uh, and each one to me is, is a little marvel. <laughs> he uh, goes on to... Uh, uh nurture along a, a career as a cartoonist and, and for a time uh, scores quite notable success in the world of advertising. Was that a surprise to you, just how much there was out there that he had done in, in this particular realm? I tell you, Greg, I, I learned yesterday about some ads I didn't even know about. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I continue to. It's, it's always a surprise, the extent of it. He did ads for beer and ball bearings, fans, furnaces, radios, rifles, sugar, scotch. I mean, uh, an amazing array of things, some of which uh, beer and scotch probably aren't people's image of Dr. Seuss. Um, he did a tremendous amount of that, and they're, they're great fun. I mean, it's the same kind of playful look, and some of these can get pretty large, some of the uh, subway cards and, and uh, displays for products that would be in a window. Uh, and they're, they're great as, as collectible items, but they're, they're a lot of fun, and I didn't want people to lose those. Right. Uh, and there's probably a thousand or more cartoons, as you mentioned. That's how he started his career. He did this for ten years before his first children's book. Uh, so there's a tremendous amount of that, and it's very varied in subject matter. Some of it uh, controversial now. 
Um, a lot of the beasts that we associate with him, the, this fantastic menagerie that he created that everybody enjoys, I mean, that came from the beasts of the Delirium Tremens. Uh, he was, his family, as you mentioned, were, were in the brewing industry, and during Prohibition, uh, basically they were out of that business, and he continued to poke fun at that, but people coming down from their alcohol high and seeing these delusional beasts, that's where those came from originally. It's, it's interesting not only for us to see his genius at work, but it's also sort of interesting to, to uh, think about the whole realm of advertising and, and the idea of being willing to take a chance with something that would often be very offbeat, a very whimsical sort of way to talk about a product. I can imagine certain clients... Uh, maybe not initially being particularly comfortable with some of the things which uh, Theodore Geisel was coming up with. Well, it took me a while to realize the genius of it, and he really was a very good salesman. I mean, we, we know this from a different point of view in that he manages to sell these ideas to kids in, in his books, but he was very good at this. And uh, one thing I'm thinking of at the moment is he created a character called the Hanky Bird, which is a metal bird, uh, maybe six inches high, and it would hang on a bottle of Hanky Bannister scotch. And when you think about why would he do this type of thing to advertise them, it's very hard to try to convince someone that your scotch is better for discernible reasons than someone else's or that your motor oil is better than someone else's. And he didn't get involved in that. What he figured is, okay, you got someone sitting in the bar, they're looking across all the bottles, you're going to point to the one with the weird bird on it and say, hey, what, what's that? You know? mm. uh, and suddenly you've distinguished that particular product. And it, it worked wonders. I mean, his whole career as Dr. Seuss took off because he had these offbeat uh, insects that he drew for flit bug spray. And it, he never tried to explain why flit was better than flytox, which was the other um, bug spray at the time. Um, matter of fact, he didn't care. He was interested in getting an advertising contract with either of them. But what he did was distinguish flit because people would see these chimerical uh, beasts, these, these crazy insects, um, and that got him a following. So that's really how Dr. Seuss started, and even though you're not doing what maybe an advertiser originally thought, once they see the success of it, they're very pleased, and that brings other advertisers, hmm. other contracts. You mentioned at one point that Ted Geisel was not the most likely candidate to write a children's book when he finally began devoting his energies and talents that way. He'd had this 10-year career in cartooning, illustrating, and advertising, but had no children of his own, and sometimes a sense of humor that was not particularly appropriate to kids. Talk briefly about the transition which he made from this other world to the world of children's book. Was it an easy transition? I don't know how easy it was. I think it came about mostly in, uh, I think of one particular incident. And I believe it was the end of the 1940s. He was giving a presentation at a conference in Utah about writing, and a family took him out to see the Great Salt Lake, and their son, who was much too young to be reading, uh, recited all of Thidwick to Dr. Seuss, and he was really surprised. He was saying, wait, I didn't write it for his age. How can he, he can't read it. You know, why does he know this? And I think then he began to realize just what effect his particular sound, his, his language, uh, had on children, that even though they didn't know the words per se, they, they memorized the sounds of them anyway. And he was also aware that with television and comic books, kids were seeing things that their ancestors never saw. Uh, kids were seeing rockets going to, you know, and, and wars and things. Uh, and so he, he threw out the old word lists that people were given that uh, kids can only understand this many words at this age and uh, started writing for ever younger and younger children. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I, I think that 
that was probably the turning point that got him to take his own work seriously, because prior to that, he used to refer to his own children's books as the annual brat books. <laughs> um, but I think he, he realized that not only uh, did he have a particular talent, but he realized the importance of it. Uh, he saw in, in Germany and in Japan during the war how propaganda had basically devastated the education of a certain uh, generation of children. And if you could teach them bad things and then needed to unteach them if possible, he wanted to get good ideas in front of children. And that's when he began taking his craft seriously. Hmm. You, you take uh, considerable time with all of the, the great books, but I also appreciate the fact that you tell us plenty about this uh, in extraordinary film called The 5,000 <laughs> Fingers of Dr. T. This was a real, in some respects, departure for him. And uh, such an odd, intriguing work. Um, tell us uh, why you think it is worth our uh, seeking out. It, it's worth it. For the simple fact that we know this fantasy world of his in two dimensions, and this is, although technically it's still a two-dimensional thing, uh, it it's the first real attempt, and still I think the most successful attempt, to bring him into a three-dimensional-esque, if you will, uh, world. So that when you when you see sets that he did, um, and you see those odd buildings with the strange angles that that aren't quite German expressionist but have that feel to it. Um, it gives you this feeling that you can take that fantasy world and, and, and bring it into reality. And that was, in fact, his problem. He didn't think it was successful enough about in doing that. Um, but I think it's just a treasure like that. He hated the movie, but <laughs> it has a real cult following now. 30 seconds for you to uh, weigh in on the more recent Dr. Seuss films which have been made, like The Cat in the Hat and before that, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Okay, I'll answer with a real quick question. What color is The Grinch? <laughs> Seriously, what color? Uh, green. Okay. Not really. See, I think so, too. Everybody pictures him. But in 1957, when he did the drawings for the book, he's not green. He's black and white with, a, with pink eyes, red hat, and red coat. Well, that's true, isn't it? Right. So we already accepted that in 1966, Chuck Jones could make him green and change him, and that's okay if it's done well. And as a matter of fact, the Grinch has undergone several changes. In, in 1977, Gerard Baldwin did Halloween as Grinch Night, which is a different-looking Grinch, and it won an Emmy. In 82, Bill Perez did The Grinch Grinch is the Cat in the Hat. We accepted that. So if, if Ron Howard in 2000 wants to try a new Grinch, there's no reason why he shouldn't be able to try it. The question is, does he do a good job or not? Same thing with the Cat in the Hat now. But I don't think Ted Geisel would have a problem with people trying. He let it happen in his lifetime. Hmm. I, don't have tr I don't have a trouble, even though I'm a purist on these things, I don't have trouble with people trying. But I want him to do a really good job. <laughs> right. As you have done with this book, The Seuss, oh, The Whole Seuss, and Nothing But The Seuss by Charles D. Cohen, published by Random House. Mr. Cohen, I really enjoyed this book and enjoyed talking with you today about it on The Morning Show. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Greg. <laughs> Some of you may recall a, a really fun interview which happened here on The Morning Show uh, a couple of years ago now with an author by the name of Charles D. Cohen, who is without a doubt the world's foremost authority on uh, Ted Geisel, also known as Dr. Seuss. That book called The Seuss, The Whole Seuss, and Nothing But The Seuss. We have uh, Charles D. Cohen with us again on The Morning Show today, this time to talk about a special 50th anniversary edition of one of Dr. Seuss's greatest classics, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Charles D. Cohen, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thank you very much for that introduction, Greg. Uh, I had a great time speaking with you last time about that book. That occasion was the 100th anniversary of Ted's birth, and now we've got the 50th anniversary of one of his most famous creations, as you said. And it is great to be revisiting this work uh, in its original form, and then to enjoy this uh, wonderful retrospective at the end of the book, in which we hear a lot about the, the background. 
Uh, I wonder if you would explain to our listeners one of the first things we see in that retrospective at the back of the book on pages 54 and 55. Uh, we see at the bottom of the page a strip of eight different covers of this classic, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Tell our listeners what I'm talking about and what that says about this story. Uh, thank you very much again. Uh, yes, what I found was, as I was doing research about this, was uh, the surprising number of languages that this book has been translated into. Um, we had, uh, it was translated into Icelandic, uh, into Hungarian, Japanese, uh, and down at the bottom of the, the area you're talking about are several of these different editions. And it's interesting, too, of course, he's not called the Grinch. I think in Japanese he's Gurunichi, and uh, in, in Iceland it's uh, G-O-R-C, no, Iceland, I'm sorry, it's T-R-O-L-L-I, and in Hungary it's G-O-R-C-S. So he's become a well-known figure, not just where we know about him here, uh, but all over the world. As, is, as, as we learned from your, your previous book, so many of the creations that we've come to know and love by Dr. Seuss uh, often had kind of long gestation periods uh, in which he would maybe get the kernel of an idea and it would uh, come to life in various forms and in kind of different stages before uh, finally emerging. Tell us just how circuitous a route it was in this case from original idea to final flowering you put that so perfectly i, I could have used you writing the book that was wonderful <laughs> uh yeah it, it, he had a phenomenal memory ted geisel and things would stick there he would get an image or a thought and he might work it out in one of his cartoons he used to be a cartoonist and an advertising man um and then i think completely unaware they would just sit there for maybe two decades and then blossom later uh, in this case, the first inkling I really saw of a Grinch character was back in the uh, late 20s. He, had, he was combining several different things that children told their parents about. I'm sorry, the, excuse me, the parents told their children about. Uh, things like the, the Sandman or the Boogeyman and the Santa Claus and the stork bringing children. And he said it was, it was too much for kids to really remember and that he should, we should roll them all into one. And so he drew this image of a, a stork with antlers, and he's delivering uh, a Santa Claus, which is also a combination of the boogeyman, you know, to someone's roof. And I think that Santa Claus boogeyman image was probably the, the first idea of what a Grinch would be like. And then and you're talking uh, almost exactly 30 years later um, when the book finally comes out. Um, now, in between, he, he continued to play with various ideas about the images that we have of Christmas, what would bring Santa, you know, how would you change a reindeer, what else would you use. Uh, in the book, we used uh, a couple of the uh, Christmas cards that he made for family back in the 30s, and in one of them, there's a series of five of the typical Susian beast delivering Santa, and him saying, after all, reindeer are so common. Um, you know, he would play with these various images, and so I tried in the book to show the, that development, how the Grinch went from this boogeyman Santa into uh, an advertisement for Holly Sugar, which is the first time you see a Grinch looking like the Grinch we know, um, uh, taking Max and having him evolve from a dachshund with deer uh, with antlers into the animal that we know with uh, the antlers being tied on, and the same thing for the Who's, for example. Mm. It's really interesting, too, to look at some of those uh, early examples of a character called the Grinch. I mean, to see <laughs> Dr. Seuss use the term Grinch not to describe the specific character that we know from this story. I mean, sometimes it'll be a relatively pleasant-looking character that will be called a Grinch for whatever reason. That, yeah, it takes us a moment to get over the shock of that. 
this is the fun of, of this part of my job. I get to, to find out of all these things. The first time that he used the word Grinch, uh, it actually referred to a bird. There's a, a bald-headed uh, Grinch that sits on a rock, and it's in the book Scrambled Egg Super from, I think it's 1953, uh, the main character walks by, and that animal isn't that bird isn't laying eggs that day. So it was a completely different thing. And then he shows up a couple of years later in a story uh, called The Hubub and the Grinch. And this is another pleasure in doing a retrospective like this is to, that people have probably never heard of The Hubub and the Grinch. And we get to show people that story. But at that time, a Grinch was developing this sort of nasty streak. Basically, it was someone who sells people things that they don't need. Uh, in this case, a piece of green string that he convinces someone to buy, uh, or rather a hubub to buy. And then at the same year that he, he's having a Grinch sell people things they don't need, that's when he draws this Grinch character that we think of, and he's selling people sugar. <laughs> so mm. He tended to do this where he didn't think so much about the interplay between the two, the commentary. Mm. Of course, for a lot of people, they know this story best either from the most recent uh, live-action uh, feature film or maybe even more likely from the, the magnificently rendered animated special from the mid-1960s. I suppose in either case, if that's how you primarily know this story, it's going to be a real revelation, in a sense, to pick up this book and read the story in its original form, although it really shows us how true the animated special was uh, to this original work. It's part of... Uh I find fascinating the evolution. Uh, you know, when I went into this, I had forgotten that the Grinch uh, had shown up pretty much every decade as a as a reimagined, slightly different looking character. Uh, when you ask someone what color is the Grinch, they automatically say green. We we all think of him as green, but when you look at the book, you realize that he was originally black and white with pink eyes and occasionally that red Santa suit. So um, the 1966 special that you're referring to that he did with Chuck Jones. Um, in some ways, almost supplanted this in, in the general consciousness that people have. But when you go back, um, it, this is still very endearing. It, it, there's something charming about this original. Um, it was interesting. He was able to do such a fantastic job with Chuck Jones because they had worked together already in the Army on films. So they had a rapport. Um, that, that one, Ted's main contribution was all of these uh, lyrics for these wonderful songs sung by Thurl Ravenscroft. Um, and, but people may not be aware, just like they wouldn't know about the Hubub and the Grinch, but the Grinch in, in 1977 appeared in a story for television uh, called Halloween is Grinch Night, which won an Emmy. And then in 1982, there was a story called The Grinch, Grinch is the Cat in the Hat, which also won two Emmys. Uh, and Ted wrote both of the scripts for those. And then, of course, people know him from the 2000 movie with Jim Carrey. So each, uh, this is part of what adds to his popularity. Uh, the, the original book, people can read now. His messages are still timely, still relevant, but also people have seen it. Uh, you know, new generations have seen it in ways that are comfortable for them. Hmm. I think in your retrospective, you, you really point out kind of an interesting point, which is that you know, here you are really doing a lot of research about Dr. Seuss, and in this case, really carefully tracing the emergence of this work and the way in which it's been transformed over the years. Uh, you point out quite rightly that there are people that have done Ph.D. theses on how the Grinch stole Christmas and other Dr. Seuss works. And you share with us uh, uh, something that Ted Geisel said at one point upon when, when confronted with that, uh, that reality that people were putting his works under such a, a careful sort of microscope. Yeah, it, it's an odd position to be in. 
uh, I, I always keep in mind that the quotation you're talking about where people asked him about that, and he would say how people would do this thesis about his particular use of a color, you know, a single color. And, you know, I've, I've read these things, whether they be in theses or just in, in critiques, uh, and people will go on and on about a particular color, and then he'll point out that it, it had nothing to do with that. It was that Random House was having a little tough time financially at the time and told him to cut down his number of colors. Uh, so I'm always aware of, of drawing conclusions. Uh, and it was, very, it was a very risky thing to do, even if you listened to interviews that he did or read interviews, because he was such a great storyteller, all he cared about was amusing people, that he didn't always tell the truth. So, you know, you have to, this is my job, is to go back to the first-hand sources, sort through the, the stories he told or the things that we've come to think about him and get back to what really had happened. Hmm. It's interesting, too, you quote his memoirs where, where Ted Geisel said, it's the product that's the most important, not the process of how it was created. It's so ironic that he <laughs> said that because, in fact, your your magnificent first book, The Seuss, The Whole Seuss, and Nothing, like the, nothing But the Seuss, is almost almost entirely taken up with that process. And we're so glad you uh, you uh, disregarded Ted Geisel's thoughts on that because, I mean, really, it, it only enhances our appreciation of the final product when we understand uh, the process by which it was created. Well, I, I appreciate that analysis and your incredible memory about the previous book. Uh, it, it's true. I, I think that both are true. I, I think what he was trying to get at was that, uh, in the end, as the person, as the artist, what he wants to see is the final product. He wants to see that this is something people can enjoy, that the artwork came out well. I mean, he, this was agonizing for him. He would, we, we look at a book and we say, you know, that's, it's only got 200 lines in it. You know, how long can that have taken to write this children's book? But he would agonize for a year and painstakingly to try to get down that rhythm we think of as Dr. Seuss, you know, that, that particular lilt to the language, uh, was just such an effort for him. Uh, and, you know, that, when that's all done, you want to know that, that's what you want people to focus on. He didn't care about the process. But, you know, when afterwards, I mean, that's fine when the book first comes out. But, you know, you and I, uh, I'm sure, and, and many of your listeners have, have enjoyed these books. Well, here we are 50 years. It's also interesting for those of us who want to go beyond that to find out where do these things come from. You know, for him, it's hard in an interview. He had a thing he would tell people if, if there's this place called the Vilnikov, you know, near the Swiss Alps, and he would go there every year to get his cuckoo clock fixed. And this is where he got his ideas for his books. I mean, he would just make things like that up because he didn't want to have to answer the questions. That, w that was tedious. What he wanted to do was talk about the work. But for us now, it's fascinating, and I don't think he knew. I don't think he realized that the images that we see had occurred to him earlier. That wasn't of interest to him, but I think now if he could read them and go, geez, you know what, I, I, I completely forgot about that. And, and, and with, at the risk of running on in this, I had just spoken with um, his agent, uh, Herb Chayette, uh, who delivered a, at his memorial, at Ted Geisel's memorial, uh, a wonderful story. Um, I don't know if we have time for the whole story, but basically th the point of the story was about Ted deciding that rather than being paid the most money per word, he would rather turn down the most money per word. Uh, and this story was about a piece that we included in this book. It was called A Prayer uh, for a Child. But at the time, they didn't even know that that had been published. This is his own agent and Ted didn't remember writing that piece. It was a complete surprise to him when he saw that. The, you know, the person who told the anecdote in 1991 at the memorial told me he didn't know that that was the piece until he read the previous book you were talking about in 2004. So, you know, Ted just, he did these things. He did such a massive amount of work that a lot of it 
would have been unfamiliar to him, and that's why it's worth doing these things and showing the process, as you had said. Well, we're glad you did it, and we're so glad to have this 50th anniversary edition of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And Charles D. Cohen, a great pleasure to speak with you again. Happy holidays to you. Thank you so much, Greg. It's a pleasure talking to you.